0: For joining us for tonight's MHTV. Um, really exciting episode tonight. Because tonight we're talking about mindfulness, um, something that I'm really interested in that I practice. Um, and I guess we're talking about it not as a panacea for everything in mental health, but um, you know, a little bit of a discussion about the pros and the cons. You know, where it works, what might the limitations be. So um, we're joined by um, Dr. Joey Weber, who is um, a mindfulness consultant and has recently published a book about mindfulness, and is also um, a PhD as well. So I'll hand you over to, um, to to Joey in a minute. First of all, we'll go to Nikki though to um,
1: to tell you how you can join in tonight. Uh, everyone lovely to have you with us um obviously you can join in as usual we're really pleased to have any questions from you um i've tweeted out the the links on facebook so join in on the facebook live or you can join us on the hashtag mhtv and that's on twitter so any questions you've got by all means please ask them and join in thank you
0: thank you so, um, Joey, it'd be really great if we could just start, really, with um, a little bit of an intro from you about your, ma- your own mindfulness journey and, um, and why you became interested in mindfulness. Where did it all start?
2: Okay, so, so yeah, so my name's Joey Weber, and nice to meet you all. Um, my own mindfulness journey was kind of, um, it's been an interesting one. I was, I was very fortunate, I think, to have kind of alternative parents, if you like, um, they both didn't follow kind of a normal trajectory that a kind of a Western person might. They both, um, I guess, they fell in love with Buddhism in the in the 70s, and in different ways. You know, my dad's um, kind of a, a Tibetan Buddhist iconographer, like one of his images is behind me, and then my mum has taken a more teaching consultant route, and she's developed her own mindfulness practice, which I trained under as well. So. As a child, growing up with parents, you know, who, I guess, practice it themselves and mm-hmm. certainly the environment around me was it was very much part and parcel of life. And that's not to say that I've been practicing all my life because, you know, it's, it's almost impossible, I would say. Um, but there have been moments. <laughs> mm-hmm. There has been uh, very many moments and different stages of my life that have kind of gravitated towards it. Probably, you know, as a kid. I mean, they actually say that, don't they? You know, Children and, and animals are actually the, the most mindful because they're very much present. So as a child, you kind of maybe naturally a bit mindful, but then as you grow up, you kind of become a lot more distracted. You've got a lot more story to tell. There's a whole big history and, and past there that you're kind of constantly looking around. and And also you've got this whole future element, you know, who am I? What am I going to do when I grow up? All this kind of stuff, and you kind of constantly projecting into the future. And and we lose our mindful selves, we become very kind of distracted. And, you know, everything around us also feeds into that kind of distraction economy, mobile phones, laptops, all of that type of thing. So I probably kind of didn't do so much in teens and then early 20s kind of moved back to it. And certainly when it exploded in in the kind of 70s, um, mindfulness-based stress reduction, mm. drunk habits in, and this whole kind of movement came came over into the West. I definitely thought, wow, okay, I can use this in a professional capacity too. Mm. And not only does this help me, because, you know, I'm a lot nicer person when I'm mindful than when I'm not, uh, but it also can help other people. And by doing that, you're helping yourself. It's kind of an interrelational quality about it. Mm. So, you kind of you go up and down with it in different contexts, different situations. You know, yeah. you can be very mindful one week, and then you know, I'd go to see my family and completely whatever it, whatever it is. You know, it's it shouldn't be so strict. We shouldn't be so strict with it. So up and down progression with it. Yeah,
0: yeah. I think that's really realistic. And for people who are, are listening tonight, because obviously you hear mindfulness being bandied around all the time, particularly if you you know you go onto um, Instagram. Um, So for people who don't know much about mindfulness, how would you describe it? What is it?
2: So mindfulness is kind of a basic definition. It always kind of involves this kind of present moment orientation with awareness and kind of an open curiosity and acceptance. No matter what's happening at this moment, we are very much fully here. So we're fully present now in this conversation. um, And we're nowhere else. You kind of on a moment-to-moment basis you're kind of aware of this moment as it unravels and so that's Mm -hmm. also being bodily aware aware of all our sensations in us that are constantly changing on a a moment-to-moment basis so it's complete present moment orientation with awareness and kind of non-judgmental attitude as well towards whatever arises we kind of just be with it's very much a being and not a doing thing Mm -hmm. and which is kind of very much contrary to how we normally live, perhaps, constantly doing things, you know, sending an email while we're shoving a sandwich in our mouth, um, you know, planning the meeting or planning who's going to get the kids, what's for tea, all that type of stuff. It's kind of constantly in kind of analytical thought state. Your dream-like nature of thought was actually mindfulness says, Mm. let's be in, in, in the now, present moment.
0: Yeah, it's really so about
2: slowing yourself down as well. Yeah, yeah, I guess you could say it's it's in one way it's it's slowing down, um, but it's not to say that you you function slowly. Mm. Um, You can still very much be part of of life and try and be as mindful as 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 you you can be, Um, but it's not to say that it it inhibits or restricts kind of other things you can do. You know, because there's a time for planning. There's a time for analysis, there's a time for reflection, but there's also a time for kind of regaining that kind of inner balance and that kind of mental stability that then actually, you know, and paradoxically it creates this opportunity for us to do more things because we're kind of mentally rested. So in one way it's slowing, in another way it's just kind of becoming more in tune with what is the reality of time and how quickly it goes.
0: Yeah. Mm. And um, there's two types of mindfulness, isn't there? There's obviously the informal part, which is about you know taking a walk, for example and and really focusing on what you can see and hear and and smell around you um or you know produ- you know painting or you know even baking can be mindful, can't it if you focus on what you're doing And there's also the meditative element of mindfulness, isn't it? For people who are listening, can you tell us a little bit about you know, the different types of mindfulness for people who might be getting, you know, interested in trying it out for the first time.
2: Okay, yeah. So I'd say i say rather than maybe different types, there's there's one kind of type, but it's like, you know, like a coin, it's got two sides. You need you need both to to function as a coin. Mm-hmm. Um so it's like there is the kind of the kind of understanding, the intellectual stuff, the kind of concepts, the mindfulness. at the same time, as the application, the method turning towards actual meditation. And so while we can, you know, on one hand, be reading, discussing, analyzing and understanding it intellectually, we also need to apply that. Hmm. So it's like that. Only then can you probably say, you know, trying mindfulness now. Um, Otherwise, if you just read a book about it or you read an article, you know, after 10 minutes, you've made your mind up already. You know, you've projected onto the article where it's coming from, what political message it carries and then you kind of accept or reject based on, you know, your kind of who you think you are. Whereas, um, you know, that's why you constantly revisit the meditation Mm. and put it into practice. That's not to say that meditation has to be sat down, you know, eyes closed. You can do walking meditation. I think some of the things you're referring to can kind of, you know, seep into that, that kind of sensory experience. You can do lying down, walking, you can have a mindful shower. You know, when I started the mm-hmm. training with my mom, there was a lot of the time about mindful eating. You mm-hmm. can eat a chocolate mindfully and all of this type of stuff. And of course you can because you, you're, you're using the same principle, the same psychological principle, mm-hmm. but applying it to day-to-day activity. Mm-hmm. So, you know, normally when we have a chocolate, we've already got a hand in the box for the other. But with it, when you're mindfully eating a chocolate, you're just eating the chocolate. Mm. and that's being aware of all the sensory experience that's happening all the different flavorful tones that arise and mm. your reaction the saliva in your mouth all of that type of stuff mm. so you can you can apply it but really when we say there's, there's one mindfulness yeah um it's just you need kind of both to appreciate it and I think only when you've really tasted it can you then say okay I've tried mindfulness now i think the yeah. the, the there's one of one of the issues with them um, and I've written about it in the book. Actually, that the popularity paradox is because it's so mm. so mainstream, or been made almost perhaps too accessible, mm. that now we've got a lot of people going, "Oh, I know about that," and you know, but actually, no, I, I like to do this. Or, and, you know, they have kind of got this pre pre kind of assumption about what it is without actually maybe trying it properly or having a guided instructor to sit with you and do a, a mindfulness of breathing exercise. You Know it's, it's a whole different thing when you actually experience it from reading a book, yeah,
0: definitely. So, um, so tell us about your book, anywhere
2: as well. Okay, so, so I've just been uh lucky enough to finish my PhD um last year, and it's always been a bit of a, a vision or a kind of obsession, perhaps, that I wanted to turn it into a book because mm-hmm. I believe that um, I've looked at a construct that adds a bit of kind of therapeutic quality to mindfulness, to contemporary mindfulness. Mm-hmm. So I've been kind of, you know, just always wanting to make it as accessible as possible. And I think maybe, you know, my background and, and upbringing, et cetera, it's kind of probably played around the kind of spiritual, religious type arenas, but also the kind of down-to-earth, you know, this is actually me and, you know, on a weekend I like to do this. and these mates and I enjoy football and blah, blah, blah. So it's this Mm -hmm. kind of, kind of, you know, these two worlds, do they have to be separate?
0: Yeah.
2: And that's the big question. And so, and so really the book is about making equanimity, which is, I think was what I tried to make it is as secular as possible, but it was kind of this mystic kind of unknown kind of quality or, A construct that is in most major religions, but not really understood. It's kind of like, whoa, I'm not like that, you know, it's too far out for me. Oh, uh, I don't really understand what that is. I like the idea, but you know, how do I actually do it? So what I've tried to do is kind of mold, craft and kind of sculpt a very secular version that can be applied in clinical practice and used in day-to-day life. Hopefully we can have a more equanimous mindset, which may help with division and our judgmental mind, because the whole idea really comes from the fact that I had a problem with the term non-judgment that mm-hmm. was used very much in mindfulness, because I kind of feel like it's an oxymoron. It's in- almost impossible for a human to be non-judgmental, mm-hmm. like we naturally are. Um, and so for me, equanimity is a much more suitable construct than the non-judgment in terms of going that little bit deeper. Mm. which involves a bit of self-analysis, it involves a little bit of compassion for others and self-compassion too, yeah. Yeah,
0: compassion is a big part of mindfulness, isn't
2: it? it? Yeah, it is. It really is. And I think it's also an element that is, is in some instances, overlooked. Mm. Um, and that's, you know, there's been quite a lot of commentary about unethical practice. Or you know, if you can train a sniper to be mindful, are they really mindful? You know, the question of ethics mm. comes into it. And then it's like, okay, that's a different area here. So, you know, we need constructs to equally link to some kind of value or virtue. So for me, equanimity binds mindfulness with compassion. So it's inextricably linked. That mm. so makes sense. Yeah
1: yeah definitely
0: nikki any um any thoughts from you at this
1: one? Yeah, i've got a couple of questions if that's all right it's a bit yeah. early but why not why not bust them out for there um i've got a question from a, from a year one student what's the difference between mindfulness and meditation so i think there's still a little bit maybe it's a little mm-hmm. bit fuzzy as an idea um another one how do you how do you use this to support well-being or mental health mm-hmm. And again, I think that takes us back to the good stuff about mindfulness, but also some of the, the ways maybe that it's been inappropriately used as well. So maybe we can touch on that. Um, and we've got a comment from Adrian. First of all, belated happy birthday, Vanessa, which is always nice to hear. Um, and then um, Adrian saying um, strong believer in mindfulness and action. So living in the moment. So maybe we can think a little bit about that. Um, allowing the time to feel and, and sense what's around how can mindfulness be brought into the workplace or study so that's loads of questions oh, yeah. okay. there's to be so many so if you just ignore the birthday bit do the other bits <laughs> <laughs> like <not> the birthday. <laughs> how about we, we um,
2: ignore the questions just sing happy birthday
1: <laughs> so the first one was about what's the difference between mindfulness and meditation
2: so mindfulness is to be mindful is to to be in a meditative state, really. So mindfulness is meditation. But at the same time, you can probably approach mindfulness without meditation. You can just read about it. You can just understand it as, as a concept, what it is, what it's trying to say, what it is and what it's not. So you can have a theoretical understanding of mindfulness. But then when you turn that into the actual method, then it's meditation. Right. So it's like, you know, like, like, um it's like a list of ingredients on a cake, isn't it? It's not a cake until you've made it into a cake. So it's like mindfulness is a whole host of instruction. But until you're like, you know, put it in the oven, you know, you meditate, mm-hmm. then you understand it. So it's like, it's separate and it's not separate. It's, it's kind of, um, does that make mm-hmm. sense? Yeah. yeah. So it's theory practice, really, isn't it?
1: Really takes us on to the next question. Very smoothly done, Jerry. <laughs> the thing about um, basically how might you how might this be important for mental health practice or well being?
2: I think I think hugely important mm. um, because you're really working with your own state of mind, and you're working with that in a preventative capacity as well. So I think some of the miss selling and the mis kind of paradox is oh, you know when I'm stressed, I'll do 10 minutes of meditation and then it'll all be gone, you know, and then, oh God, thank, thank God for a bit of mindfulness now. Now I've had a really bad week. I'll just do it. It'll be solved. And it's a total miss understanding of actually that what you do with mindfulness is you're kind of preparing the mind. So in preparing and kind of um, settling the mind, then you're more aware of thoughts in relation to who you are and experiences. So you're more readily able to deal with those as it unfolds rather than be overwhelmed and consumed by them. So very much works well in the arenas of anxiety and depression and things like that. Mm. Um, but as a preventative thing as well, it's just what, what what I really want to do more of is kind of, te- you know, there's a lot of misconception that 10 minutes can save your life or, you know, just do that and we'll be happiest people alive, mm. all of the type of stuff. And it's kind of, it's completely wrong. Really, we need to be practicing day day to day and building that strength. It's, it's the muscle analogy, isn't it? It's like you go to the gym, you don't start off with 100 kilograms. Mm. Which kilo, 100 kilograms? Is that even heavy? It shows how long it's I've quite heavy.
1: <laughs> well, I, I think we get where you're going with it, though. You don't pick up <laughs> the heaviest weight, you start and work up to it.
2: You, you start very slowly and you build up. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, wow, the, the mind's quite strong here. It's quite resilient, it's quite buoyant to change, you know? So when things happen, you're less, you know, easily swept away in, in you know, crazy emotions or negative mind state states. Mm.
1: I think you're right. I think the more you practice as well, the easier it is to find your balance. So I was saying to you guys before we started, I'd fallen out of doing it, just fallen out of practice of meditating and having sort of mindful time. And since lockdown happened and I suddenly had a lot more time on the hands. I went back to it and it was a struggle to get back into it. And, um, but now I find myself much easier to stabilize than I used to be. What I do find though, and I think maybe I'd love to talk about this from my perspective, if that's right, is what you do on the days when it's tough. Because not every day I find I've, I don't have the same amount of balance every day. Some days I find it really hard to concentrate and I can maybe only do five minutes, you know, and that takes me a, a real struggle just to stay still. And then other days it, it's no, but an hour is no, is no problem. So I'm, I think maybe. Push, pushing my way into other people's questions there. we we'll can come back to that in a bit. But I guess we should do Adrian's first, because he did ask first, which is this idea about how can mindfulness be brought into the workplace? So I guess that maybe that's a, as a mental health nurse or study for our students that are watching.
2: Mm-hmm. So there's, there's plenty of, of research out there to support mindfulness in the workplace. Um, you know, different studies have actually been done on it and leadership and all this type of stuff. So... But how do you really bring it into the workplace? You can only you can kind of embody embody the qualities of mindfulness and it'll ripple out. Because really when we say workplace, I mean a workplace is just it's a building with a lot of people in it doing doing certain tasks. So, you know, we can't go, oh, everyone's got to be mindful now. But what we can do is we can be mindful and then perhaps that'll ripple out. And then then you've got a culture change a culture shift. And that's the thing that also is something that, um, you know, when we talk about mindfulness and social change and things like that, Mm. that's something that, um, you know, we could strengthen with. So it becomes less as a selfish practice, but more of a kind of, it ripples out, Mm. you know, just by by leading by example and a role model, you can bring it into the workplace. But obviously it helps if you've got managers and things that support it. Have Mm. team meetings, start off with 10 minutes of meditation have the meeting, and then you could end with 10 minutes. You know, there's plenty of opportunities, it mm. at lunchtime, you could be like, you know what, I'm not going to eat at the desk hunched over and, you know, just trying to show off how much work I'm doing, but I'm just going to take myself away, give myself five minutes, 10 minutes, half an hour, one hour, and do it that way. Mm. Yeah, and if there's training, if you're lucky enough to have in an organisation that has training, then you could uh, be part of a, a much bigger Kind of change in that you could have an instructor or someone come in once a week, um, twice a week um, to kind of remind the culture, steer the culture a little bit, Mm. and then hopefully everyone kind of adopts it at the same time. But what we can do to start off really quickly and easily is just be more aware of our mind, Mm. where it's
1: going. Because on one hand, I feel quite positive at the thought of it being incorporated into schools, into into the starts and ends of lessons or meetings, um, and then with this idea about it being part of workplace culture and, and part of just everyday life is really really positive. But at the same time, I know that there's, I I have anxiety as well about the idea that maybe people use it instead of giving decent paying conditions or mm. uh, you know a good standard of life, and that that mm. stuff I think is 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 troubling to me. If you got any thoughts on that.
2: Yeah, that's a really good a really good point and I think it's a a real contemporary issue at the moment because and I write about this in the book actually um about that there's a worry it dep- I mean it depends on the motivation behind why mindfulness is introduced but there's a worry that it can just be used as a kind of a quick tick box thing well right we've done our well being lot and also it can be used as a kind of right well this person's not mindful enough and that's why they're stressed you know, it's nothing to do with the fact that we're pouring 80 to 100 hours on this person a week. It's actually they're not mindful enough. So there's a little bit of a kind of, oh, an organization has to take responsibility for um, mental health in the workplace. Mm. And so that, that's um, a really critical point, is that what motivation is mindfulness being used? Is mm. it ethical? Is it non-ethical? Is it altruistic? Is it not... Um, because there is, you know, we live in a, a neoliberal capitalist society. It could be um, used as a kind of a cheap fix, you know, just follow your breath. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no money's needed there. Get on with your meditation. Why are you working as hard? Um, but obviously that's a real heavy negative attitude. It could be used in a complete positive way, but it depends behind the motivation of the employer. Mm-hmm. But I think you'll find it. I think we would find that if organizations did have that latter approach, the you know, kind of this positive outlook that they would have staff that are happy mm. with themselves and their work and mm. working out a little bit more, perhaps, not to say mm. that it should happen, because you know we should all have a strict kind of contract and what's mm. what's healthy. But you might find, especially in the healthcare and profession, I know um, the problem of compassion fatigue and things like that is because things just kept, keep getting put on, healthcare staff. And there's always mm. this problem of underfunding budget cuts, blah, blah, blah. And so it's like, in that way you can see, oh, mindfulness is just a very easy thing to put in there and to kind of build people up. Mm. But that's actually the wrong way of going about it. You mm. know, it's just putting extra load onto people that, you know, might not have done much mindfulness and, you know, 10 minutes, 10 minutes a month, or they've done on a weekend course, and you suddenly, you know... Mm. Right? deal with loads.
1: We've got free mindfulness at work, and I have to say it's one of it's going to be one of the nice things about it's one of the few Zoom meetings I actually look forward to. We do it on a Monday, and what's really interesting about it is there's thousands of people who work where I work. There's seven of us who do mindfulness together, <laughs> but it's really it really is supportive. It's really a lovely thing. Um, I have one question that's just come in, and um, Vanessa, do you want to go back to you or do you want to ask this question? Yeah,
0: um, ask the question, and then I'll I'll continue. Yeah,
1: and it's asking. from Gwen. He's saying that um Terry's kind of answering that but is he speaking that's how good we are Gwen oh. <laughs> so, uh, She's just saying, um will you go into the newer biology at all you know talking about um being around the kind of mindfulness scene maybe about 10 years ago and then this idea about um I don't know what this means but somatic experiencing mm. um so this idea about why mindfulness isn't enough as well so mm. I guess we did answer that a little bit but I think um maybe asking a little bit about the newer biology would be helpful yeah. Wow
2: Need a neurobiologist here.
0: It's a really <laughs> good book. There's a really good book. While I was looking down, I was trying to find mm-hmm. it on my audible list. Um, and I'll tweet it later. Oh, and it is about the science of mindfulness and um, versus sort of the Buddhist aspect. And I'll 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 share that as well. Because I Thank think you. that's what you hear a lot in mental health. People who particularly come from a sort of more biological model, people mm. do ask about the science of mindfulness all the time. I mean, for me, I think mindfulness is a holistic experience and I think there's a biological aspect but you know all the other parts but I think you know we might be able to sell um mindfulness and encourage people more um if people knew more about the science because there is quite a lot of science isn't there about the sort of changes that can happen from practicing mindfulness regularly Um, and yeah Evidence base about it because a lot of people I hear on Twitter all the time, you know, there's no evidence base for mindfulness, but there is a really strong evidence base for
2: mindfulness. There's, there's a massive evidence base yeah. for mindfulness. It's in the nice guidelines for the NHS and um, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. And you looking at the research because you know when you do a PhD, that was one of the first things you have to do is just read mm. about um, all the mm. all the research. Mm. And there's just it's in so many different areas. So, you know, there is biological stuff there to do with, um, you know, physiological changes in the body. Um, there's there's psychological studies, there's neuroscience, there's brain change, there's structural and kind a of brain change in different parts of the brain, from the amygdala to the insula, mm-hmm. all of this type of stuff. So there's, there's fascinating amounts of research out there now. But what happens is, and this is the um, the, the kind of the popularity paradox, is that what happens is you'll have a commentator, Probably from a, a big um, news outlet, and they'll write an article, probably dissing it, or because they don't like it, or they've not tried it. Mm. And I'm, I w- I, I've never really seen anyone um, put up a real strong case for the for the evidence base not being there. It's just kind of a, a kind of a, a comment, because really, there's loads. I mean, if you go in the, the, the databases and go in the um, different search terms, it's just mindfulness and everything. It's, you know, there's. Mm. There's, there's millions of, of studies out there. Oh, uh, maybe I shouldn't say millions. Maybe I should say hundreds of thousands. Probably more realistic.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting question. I think um, for me, you know, what you were talking about with leadership development, I think it's about, you know, I mean, it's a. Uh, commonly banded around term about systems approaches, but there is something, isn't there, about, you know, looking after individuals within the system, but also looking at the system as well. Mm. So um, when I used to run um something that I did through the leadership development work I did. And we had, you know, day workshops. We did used to do mindfulness at the beginning of those day sessions. And even though I've done mindfulness courses and I practice it, I did feel silly at first getting everyone to kind of slow down and and do some mindfulness for 10 minutes. And because it's so so removed from the culture, isn't it? And for me, it was like I practice mindfulness at home, but if you start practicing it at work, you know, it seems all hippie-like and really removed from the the sort of culture. But actually in the evaluation of that, everybody talks about the mindfulness aspect, which was just a very small part of the, of the day. So people do like it. And I think there is something about changing the culture and also acknowledging that it's not the panacea, not in terms of um, workforce stress, but also in terms of mental health and One of the things that I found, and I'd be interested in your thoughts on this, I did the eight-week MBSR course, but I was the only clinician on the course, and um, the person who delivered it was um, certainly an expert in mindfulness from a sort of PhD point of view. because She had a PhD in it. Um, However, my concerns were that there was no mental health practitioner in the room. And there were a few occasions where people were really triggered. And yeah. nobody in the room except me knew how to respond to that. And it was yeah. quite basic mental health first aid stuff. Yeah. So I, I do, I have, as much as I love mindfulness, I have this like reservation about, you know, who um you know who 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 you know who is their mindfulness instructor what's their background yeah. you know I'm not saying everyone who practices mindfulness or instructs in mindfulness needs to have a clinical background but i do think there needs to be something about understanding mental health and understanding the sort of potential dangers of mindfulness around triggering people and um around mm-hmm. maybe not understanding people's mental health histories but about understanding that you know you might have a room full of people and everyone's going to have a very different
1: history and And it's not even mental health is it when you think about it it's it's there's a reason that people keep busy there's a reason that people have the tv on all the time that people have music on all the time that people block things out it's a coping Mm. strategy isn't it in in a world where everything is very scary particularly at the moment and um to have that vibration, that noise, is is a comfort for some people. Mm. And then to take mm. it away without putting anything else in its place is yeah. naturally anxiety-provoking, isn't it? You know, it's, mm. a, it's a strategy, isn't it, to manage your life having busy thoughts. And when they mm. go away and you're left with what else is there, even if you don't have a, a mental distress, it can be quite an unsettling experience. I think a lot of people are not used to silence, particularly internal silence. Yeah. Gary?
2: Mm, yeah, really, really good points. And yeah... Um Yeah, there's an interesting thing about the whole uh, mindfulness um, training and that kind of, you know, who can be a mindfulness trainer. And sometimes it seems, you know, like eight weeks or a weekend course is enough because in one, it's oversimplified. But I don't know. It's, um, you know, to become a a, a cognitive behavioral therapist, you need like, you know, five years of training and a degree and all this lot. But to be a mindfulness instructor two days seems to be enough. Um, And there is a kind of... Um a bit of a thing there. It's not to say that you know people can't who would do the two days can't actually really, you know experience some kind of profundity of its practice mm-hmm. and really kind of walk out oh, wow. But in terms of you know then teaching others, yeah, yeah, there needs to be safeguards in place and different backgrounds. People come with a whole host of misconceptions, stereotypes, prejudgments, all of this stuff. But also, like you say, their own coping strategies. And you know, if yeah. you know you've just been running on autopilot your whole life, you got someone there saying, "Right, don't do that," <laughs> mm-hmm. and then they don't, and they're like, "Oh my god," you know. And that mm-hmm. is naturally scary for people. Mm-hmm. Um, but mm-hmm. they ha- I think if they, this, the this the was sensitive, they'd be like, "Kind of, a, that's okay too." Like in the ebb and flow of changing the kind of mm-hmm. experience towards things, then they may. You know, be this kind of looking at your anxiety or looking at yourself in a different way. That is naturally scary because you then go, if I've been if I've been on autopilot the whole time and I stop and I go, well, who am I? What mm-hmm.
1: is this?
2: You know, we are not our thoughts. Oh my god, well, who are we? You know, that's enough to freak anyone out. Yeah, um, yeah. And then that that's what maybe I think you fall back on. kind of Mm. spiritual religious people go oh well you know part of god's plan or i'm reincarnated i'm going to go here and that's the kind of perhaps the people that kind of are okay because there's some kind of longer purpose or vision but with Mm. the people that don't have that or they're just non-religious or atheist you know and it's like well what would be the point there's no point not doing that you know i'm going to be um you know I, i like that i function like that so in that way i think that's one of the issues that comes up That is is often not talked about, too, because Mm. it's kind of the deep, profound philosophical questions that kind of are never looked at. So I think there needs to be a model of self-construct and there needs to also be some virtues and characteristics involved with that, like compassion um, Mm. to kind of when we replace or when you replace your kind of thinking mind with awareness, Mm. you know, where does that then lead to? and what are the effects that that will happen so there's yeah. this kind of gentle kind of buffer a soft kind of bouncy castle you're not just jumping off into the into the to the moat but you're actually just bouncing on the soft different terrain and it will be different mm-hmm. It's like when you try ever, anything different though of course is a kind of oh my god you know but at that point it shouldn't be used as kind of oh my god it's you know as terrible It's you have all these detrimental effects yeah. um, if mental health's an issue, there should be kind of you know disclaimers or things at the beginning because obviously that enters a different kind of platform, more therapeutic, and that's when trained specialists should should also be, you know, part of that part part of that kind of package. But it's not to say that a, a, a trained mindfulness um, consultant with the relevant background couldn't do that themselves, uh, because it's all about language, isn't it? And, and, and yeah. meaning and kind of context and this kind of uh, approach. So, but yeah, for some, trying to be mindful in in real times of distress is kind of the opposite thing they need too. You know, mm-hmm. if you've got someone who's just had a bereavement and they're sat in front of you and you're trying to write, just clear the mind. You know, all this type of stuff. And yeah, yeah. You're not your thoughts. You know, this person just wants to like kind of scream in your face and you know say, well, what the hell are you doing? I'm like, there's all this grief here. You know, Mm -hmm. when you look in, it's scary. You might Mm -hmm. not like what you find. So there also should be a little bit of sensitivity about how we approach it and our best state in terms of what's going on for us right now. Mm -hmm. Because certainly for me, there's sometimes, you know, in extreme emotional, volatile situations, it's like, I'm not mindful. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'm mindful of how angry I am. Um, but you know, there's the kind of you lose kind of sense of practice. But there is this kind of natural returning to this kind of um, safe place, if you like, within in your mind that's kind of a bit more secure afterwards. So yeah. it depends what's going on for people. And if there's also this whole huge thing going on with um, medication, and you know, people on medication and what that does to your brain in terms of giving supplementary chemicals and things like that and how it changes things. And then um also when you're doing mindfulness as kind of a natural approach to the mind. It's there may be some mm-hmm. some future studies in there that could could look at how that how that actually is viewed and what changes occur in the brain. Um, mm-hmm. So there's very complicated um really when you go into it because actually there's so many different variables that you, no one can control for. We're only uh, human beings. Um, so many different variables that we might not be aware of that we're bringing to the table too. Yeah. Some kind of, you know, when I was bullied as a kid or something and it comes back suddenly when you started to mindfulness practice or you're kind of opening potential for different things to arise. Yeah. And Certainly if you've never looked, you don't know what's there. You don't know who you are without your kind of, Narrative or the story of who you are. So yeah, that's
0: true. It's
2: quite profound practice, and once you kind of start, you kind of you want more because it feels nice too. Yeah.
1: Um, I've got another question, if that's all right, just coming from Michael. Hi, Michael. Um I wonder how helpful mindfulness would be then as a crisis intervention with people who are highly distressed. Is it effective? That kind of sort of thing you've been talking about. Isn't it?
2: Yeah, I think I just. Just basically touched upon that, and it's like Mm. I, I think in times of real crisis, sometimes it's not the time to be mindful. You know, it's kind of release your emotion. You know, be angry, um, in in a constructive way, or kind of maybe it's time for talking. That's not to say while we are not, you know, releasing our anger or talking, we can't be mindful. Mm. Um, In one way, it's a little bit too simplistic to say, "Oh, can we do it here, but not here." It depends on the approach because, of course, you can be mindful in these moments, too, if you kind of really kind of heightened sense of awareness and you're kind of aware how bodily sensations are changing, you know, grief, actually, what is grief, where is it, where is it located, it's going, it's changing, and why am I anxious, what's this thought? And You're kind of approaching your kind of introspective world differently. Can be very valuable in a crisis. I'm not saying, oh, don't use it in a crisis. I'm saying mm-hmm. we're all kind of so unique and different. Mm. Real crisis is probably not going to work, but in in times of crisis, I go to it. Mm. The only thing to stable stable my mind before, you know, because it's so worked up, because mm. it's so overexcited or so kind of fearful, you know, a bit of mindfulness, mm. pff, right in the middle yeah. again. And it's that kind of balance. So it's it's all about balance. So so yes, in a crisis, but equally potentially, no in a crisis. <laughs> what,
1: what about um if you don't want me asking, i have just noticed the time. It's just whizzed by. Um oh, wow. yeah, I know. That's how mindful we are. What a good influence you are. <laughs> like, so. Um, i guess i'd I'd like to to pick your brains before you before you you head out is is about what happens on the days when it's difficult so it's nothing catastrophe is happening it's just very hard to settle you can't quite get your get your focus what have you got any advice or support around that
2: there there should there should be a lot of um self-compassion with mindfulness Mm. because we can't beat ourselves up for not being mindful enough Mm. it becomes then like a task and then in that way we compartmentalize it and go oh I don't like it actually, I prefer to watch TV or have a pint of lager or a few cigarettes or whatever and then I'll be calm. So it's like this kind of got to really approach it with a sense of being kind to yourself, that you may be mindful, on a very mindful day or do an hour of meditation that day, but the next day, you know, something's happened, you know, someone said something, whatever and it's just a bit more difficult. Mm. So if you do five minutes, that's fantastic.
0: I think what you were saying about training the mindfulness muscle is really really important isn't it because when I you know I'm somebody who I've always got a million things in my head and I'm quite flighty in my thinking and you know often poor concentration and um, and so you know mindfulness was really hard for me at first um, and it still is you know and I think this is assumption that Um, you're failing at mindfulness if you can't um, switch Mm. off from your thoughts and you're just totally in the zone of mindfulness. And that's not the case. And I find when I'm really, really stressed and I can only do five minutes of mindfulness because I know I've got 101 other things I need to be doing, it's still really beneficial for me to take that five minutes of mindfulness. And it's probably more beneficial than it is when I'm really calm and I can do an hour of mindfulness. And I think Mm. that... So that need, And, you know, certainly, you know, mindfulness is really recommended, for example, with ADHD, isn't it? You know, we I think the message needs to be out there that mindfulness isn't about being able to be, you know, sit in a meditative state for a, an hour a day kind of thing. And um, I think, you know, just practicing it little and often helps. Mm-hmm. and It's not about being able to be, um, you know, perfectly in a mindfulness state that you forget about everything else. It can mm-hmm. still be even if you can only do a, a few minutes of
2: it. Exactly, yeah. It's like I, said, I think I said before the chat, but you're only kind of as mindful as your last moment. So irrespective of 20 years' experience or whatever, if I'm mindless then and say something out of turn or whatever, then, you know, it's all gone. But it's mm-hmm. the remembering that's the key, and that's actually mindfulness itself, is just the reminder and the remembering, the awareness of of your own state of mind. So you never kind of switch off thoughts. You kind of just become more aware mm. of them there, yeah. and then through this awareness, you kind of you can observe them coming up and then going. You're not kind of solidified and identified with them that you're kind of in your movie-like existence all the time. Mm. So it's just you heighten that awareness. It doesn't say you you, you stop being you. It's like you know, with a balloon on, on a string, you can let the balloon rise and see the mm. thought, but you're not necessarily that connected to it. So it doesn't have to have any kind of in influence on you if you don't want it to. Mm. And that's kind of more mindful. And that's actually not, it's not that difficult to be doing or trying little and often, because it's just a, a reminder muscle. Mm. Um, it's probably like, you know, one of an obscure muscle, I think, you know, like under your, under your arm or something. It's kind of, it's not an obvious thing, but actually when you, when you work it, it's kind of, it's so so important. So it's mm. fundamental. So it's just mm. that reminder of okay, where where what what's my head doing now?
0: Mm. Yeah. I think the other thing, yeah, you know, before we move to the final five minutes for me is about um not having to keep still either to do mindfulness. So I remember when I did the eight-week course, I went home and I thought it'd be great for my children to to practice mindfulness. But of course I, you know, I couldn't get them to keep still, particularly my daughter who, you know, is forever dancing around the room. And it was like I had to have a change of mindset about it, that particularly with young people, it's not, you know, um, she can incorporate mindfulness into her movement. We don't have to, mm-hmm. you know, lay down and, and, and meditate, you know, there mm. are other ways. And I think, I feel that it, particularly for young people, um, you know, mindfulness you know, could be hugely beneficial and we just need to adapt the way we think about it. And probably the same for people who, you know, are really agitated and and can't sit still. There are other ways that we can practice mindfulness.
2: Yeah, like an an embodied mindfulness. You kind of bring it into life and you kind of, you notice when it's not there. And then that's what, when you start to progress, make kind of a progression, it's like without mindfulness, I'm actually kind of a bit more unstable here. So this kind of noticing of how beneficial it is doesn't have to necessarily be sat meditating although it does help you know to, to, to kind of ground yourself and just work with the body then isn't it in the kind of they're they're totally linked the mind and the body mm-hmm. you know one thing happens in one and the other's affected so mm-hmm. so if, in times of real agitation and things if you calm the mind you calm the body yeah um, and equally if you calm the body you can calm, calm the mind mm-hmm. so it, it's the different your kind of approach to all of it in different contexts because we're not um, monks or nuns. Like we're, you know, Western practitioners in busy work lives. We've got husbands, cats, dogs, and mm. we're distracted. We've got a mobile phone that we probably unconsciously check five, 10 times an hour. And yeah. um, so we've got to deal with reality. Let's not, you know, dress it up. We're really distracted mm. we're kind of mentally all over the place all the time. So a way of embodying and making mindfulness more real to us is about Dealing with what's, what, what's around us. So, yeah. mindfully checking the phone, yeah, mindful yeah. of how long you're on the phone. You know, mm. it's, it's kind of, you know, seeps into everything.
1: Mm.
2: If you yeah. want it to, yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I'm conscious we're coming to the end. Um, and I wondered whether you had any, um, any final thoughts, really, particularly for people who may be listening that haven't tried mindfulness before. Um, any tips, advice, where do people get started, where do people find your book as well? Um, we'll share the link to it as well for people who are following on Twitter.
2: That's great, yeah. So, um, so yeah, I've got a book here. So it's I'm, like I'm pre-prepared. It's called Why Mindfulness is Not Enough, Unlocking Compassion with Equanimity. I think most of this discussion has been around mindfulness and it's, it's really useful. Why it's not enough in this book is because it touches upon some of the things we've touched upon in terms of the context in which it's used, the kind of ethics behind it, the motivation, and some of the contemporary issues that we're up against. Um, And then it introduces uh, equanimity as a construct, which I've uh, defined of um, is to do with your discrimination faculties, which is kind of complicated language, really, for your likes and dislikes and neutralities towards Mm -hmm. phenomena and experience and people. So it's to do with those, but sort of being aware, heightened awareness of those with kind of self-compassion and compassion for others. Mm. So you, there's and there's two types of equanimity, this kind of inner equanimity that we kind of cultivate over time, and then an external one. So we're then patient with others, likes and dislikes, neutralities, mm. so we can be more compassionate. So what I did was devised a, a, an equanimity barriers scale. Um, what barriers are we up against in terms of of well-being and, and equanimity. Where do our judgments come from? Why do we judge the way we do? All all questions like that are kind of approached. Um, and that's, you know, based upon the idea that I didn't think non-judgmental was enough. Rather rather than not judging the judgments that are there, it's kind of perhaps more therapeutically beneficial to turn towards your judgments with a bit of wisdom. And that's equanimity, understanding the role the mind is playing in the judgmental process. Mm-hmm. before we kind of have this kind of deeper acceptance towards towards things. And in that way it becomes more of a pro-social um thing with compassion for others. So the book kind of situates itself a couple of chapters why why mindfulness isn't enough and you know, then talks about the research and then offers case studies, down to earth case case studies and meditations mm-hmm. as well. It's got some guided tips in there. Um so it's kind of it's supposed to be a hands-on practical thing. Um but um, yeah, it's in the early stages. It only got published um, about 10 days ago. So I'm now trying to um, say, yeah, if you're interested, it's on my website, which I think there's a link down there. Um, yeah. Yeah. I'm trying I to make equanimity the next conversation. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. Thank you. Um, Nikki, anything before we finish from you? Any final questions?
1: Yeah. We've, uh, we've tweeted out um, links to NHS to jerry's book um if anyone does have any questions that, that occur to them later on please um feel free to put them on the hashtag on twitter um, and we'll circle back because we do keep an eye on that so if you do have any more please please ask but thank you very much and thanks jerry for such a kind of like calm kind of peaceful conversation it's been lovely thank you yeah. you're
2: more than welcome yeah thanks for thanks for the hosting
1: yeah no thank
0: you it's been great and i will look up your book as well so thank you and um and we'll end we'll end on that note shall we thank you for everyone who's listening and we will um have a look at the um hashtag later and any questions um we'll forward those on to yourself joey if that's okay no. and um, we'll see you next week Bye-bye. thank you night. bye <laughs>